Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Dear listeners, to another exciting session of Q&A with Bishop Julian. You have with you two Chief Inquisitors, Jeremy Ambrose. Hello, everyone. And myself, the relentless Javina Graham. And today in the hot seat, we have yet again Bishop Julian Porteous. Hello. Welcome. Now, Bishop, I've got a hot one for you today. I think if we had a, a special instrument that measured frequency of words that are being used publicly in the media and on Facebook and everywhere else around today, we'd have it really sharp increase in certain words like inclusiveness and diversity and harmony, particularly in the word, the phrase politically correct and um, non-judgmental. Now, these, these are words that have had a huge surge in popularity. Can you tell us where this has all come from? It's very interesting, isn't it, that suddenly we find ourselves with a whole new vocabulary. I'm sure when you look at uh, official documents um, to do with universities, to do with uh, any governmental governmental agency, um, in education, particularly you see it all, there are all these now instructions about how we should behave, what attitudes we should have, um, and uh, th these, these are now seen as a cultural norms. Um, and we have to say that these are um, relatively new uh, terms and words, and they've received a, a great deal of positive encouragement, promotion, uh, particularly in official documentation. Uh, and we could ask ourselves, what is going on? Why do we suddenly see the emergence of all these new, what, what we could call social virtues? Um, where do they come from? Probably one of the first things I'd like to, to say is that um, we can see that there is a fundamental difference between the way cultures looked at social virtues in the past and the way they are now being looked at today. In the past, what was encouraged, particularly inspired by Christianity, was the pursuit of, of particular virtues, love, trust, goodness, uh, honesty, loyalty, and so on. Now, these were very much qualities that we would understand to be nurtured in the life of an individual who seeks to be a good person and, and more particularly, a good Christian. And so many of the virtues that, um, that we were promoted came out of the Gospels, came out of Christian heritage. And the idea was that if a society... Um, was going to flourish and, and prosper effectively, then the more people lived according, lived a virtuous life, lived a good life, lived, lived honesty and so forth, then the cumulative effect would be good for the society. So it was largely uh, something that was encouraged uh, in individuals. One of the interesting things about these new words inclusiveness, um, uh, politically correct, non-judgmental, so on, the promotion of harmony, diversity and so on, is that they are, yes, encouraged to be exercised in life of individuals, but they are, are very much now being presented to us as requirements 
to live in our society or to carry out a particular job or role in education, in health, in, in, um, in, in a particular uh, work environment, the way we are to relate to, um, to other groups within the society and so on. So what we see now is not so much the pursuit of the virtuous life and then that blossoming out into a quality of life in, in society as rather the particularly various governmental agencies saying these are the virtues that have to be abided by uh, within organisations, within structures in society. They're, they're basically, to a certain extent, I have to say they're being imposed. And often they're being presented in such a way that, uh, that they have to be abided by. So there's often various um, if like structures put in place to ensure that these things are lived by. It's, it's a time when a society is starting to, if you like, make requirements of to patterns of behavior by its citizens. It's a subtle shift, but I think it's a very significant shift that is happening in our society at the present time. But isn't this a good thing? I mean, these words, equality, tolerance, anti-discrimination, I mean, aren't these virtues, I mean, they may be imposed virtues, but are they things that we should comply to? Well, certainly what one would be immediately attracted by these, the ones you mentioned, I think in particular, equality. It's a word we, we hear so much that, that we, and, and, and immediately we think, of course, we want to treat everybody equally. We want to have uh, equal respect for all, all peoples. And tolerance, tolerance obviously is something which all of us would say, I'm a tolerant individual, I accept others, I, I'm not and I don't want to, uh, to be condemnatory of others and so forth, I'll tolerate different behaviours and, and so forth, and, and I want to live in, at peace with people, so I want to be a tolerant person. Also, the, you mentioned anti-discrimination, anti that's another quality, we say, of course I... I wouldn't want to be discriminating, discriminating against somebody on basis of race or sexuality or age or something. I'd obviously want to be somebody who uh, would uh, respect every individual and not in any way be discriminatory. So when we look at these terms, our immediate impression is to say these are very noble and worthwhile and, and good terms um, to, to describe how I would like to be and how I'd like society to be. I'd like our society to respect equality. I'd like our society to respect tolerance. I'd like our society to be anti-discriminatory. However, I, the, part of the issue here is, is that these qualities which are seen as having an intrinsic value and worth uh, are being presented in a way that um, they become requirements that must be fulfilled. So what's subtly happening is it's not so much that I'm doing things out of a sense of moral responsibility, but I'm doing things because I, I'm required to do them. And what we see, the big thing we see here is the question of compliance. As you know, now in, in many structures and organisations, There'll be all sorts of things now about uh, compliance. Is the organisation uh, in its, all its procedures and practices and everything being anti-discriminatory? Anti you know, are there any policies that were seen to, to discriminate? 
So <clears throat> again, we would say, well, surely this is good. Surely this is good. However, it's, we spoke before about the danger of t the tyranny of liberalism. And I think this is a good example of what can happen. Now, it's people say, look, these things are good. These are things all related to, to, to liberalism. So aren't they good? But we see, for instance, that, that um, people who have a same-sex attraction and who want to have their partnerships recognised in the society use the word equality to say that they have an equal right to be given the title, their, their relationship be given the title of marriage as, uh, as others have. And so they want to overturn what has been a whole uh, tradition in history based in all cultures, supported by all religions. They want to change it in the name of equality. So we would say, well, isn't that fair? And somebody say, our society is all about equality. Therefore, we surely we should recognise their, their right to have, have uh, their relationships seen as a marriage because of equality. And we get torn there. We think, yes, uh, and that's why many people immediately say, well, it seems right that we should change the definition of marriage to favour equality. However, equality is not as simple as that. Uh, just to take an example, if we pursue this question of uh, same-sex unions for a moment, that um, society says that, and it's commonly accepted, that uh, a man cannot marry his daughter. Um, we believe it's inappropriate for a, 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 a brother and a sister to get married. Now, are we denying their equality, their right to be able to do what they believe is right? Can, homosexual people will say, but we love each other and therefore surely we have a right to, to have marriage and we should be treated equally to everybody else. Could a brother and sister say, we want to be treated, we love each other, we want to be treated equally um, to everybody else in society and therefore we also want to get married. And we'd say no. Straight away, something instinctively within us would say, no, that's not right. In other words, these words, which are useful and appropriate words, cannot be absolutized. And of course, that is what's happening at the present moment in our society. These, they're becoming absolutized and they're being required of the society. And we've shifted the base of morality away from religious-based uh, religious um, moral principles to these particular, if you could use the word, social virtues, equality, tolerance, and anti-discrimination, and so on, but we'll absolutize them. And the danger is they're being imposed upon the society. We have to, for instance, if legislation was passed in Australia, as it has been passed, say, recently in New Zealand, then we have to accept the fact that in the name of equality, a couple who are of same sex have their, their, their union acknowledged as a marriage. All right, Bishop. So around the emergence of these sort of compulsory social virtues, there's also sprung up the use of certain words to describe people who don't subscribe to these mm. 
um, social virtues. Sometimes the, the, the term hate speech is used, homophobia, fundamentalism, conservatism, and occasionally even the word bigot is used to describe um, people who don't subscribe to these. How have these words emerged? These words, again, hate speech, well, we, we probably wouldn't have been familiar with hate speech 10 years ago or uh, and so on. Suddenly these, this word is, has come. Homophobia is used constantly. Anybody who does not support the rights of, of whatever people of homosexual um, who have same-sex attraction want, um, anybody who opposes what they want is classed as homophobic. And uh, these terms are very, very effective. Um, people can can really feel intimidated by yes, such so. titles being addressed. And the fact that somebody could say, look, I, I honestly have a different view to what you have. And I, I believe, for instance, I believe in the nature of marriage as being between a man and a woman. And I have a lot of very good reasons for understanding marriage as, as being between a, a man and a woman. Um, and yet, when, if we were, say, we oppose the idea that, uh, that a, a same-sex attracted couple could, ha could see their marriage, their, their union as a marriage, straight away to be condemned as homophobic, um, is a way, basically, of repressing any contrary views. To a certain extent, this is labelling in order to, to so uh, discourage people from being able to present contrary views. The danger here, again, is, is this tendency for there to be one principal narrative to the society and to the direction in which society is going. And anybody who holds a different view is seen as, as, as being a dissenter to the, the primary direction of society. And one senses that slowly, uh, bit by bit, such people are being marginalised, being silenced, and one of the effective ways of doing this is actually to impose upon them certain uh, descriptors which, uh, which are very negative. And so, you know, the, the person who wants to have their, their, their uh, same-sex union recognises marriage, they favour equality. It's a very good, noble virtue. Those who oppose it are homophobic. Straight away, one feels that anybody in opposition has, um, has, has a problem. You know? It's very interesting to note that in, in the time of communism, that dissenters were often sent to mental asylums. You may be aware that that was a, a practice in the Soviet Union. One thing, a very curious thing, is it, but it was making a statement. It was saying that if you do not uh, accept the views of the society, something is mentally wrong with you, and therefore you should be assigned to a mental asylum. In other words, your thought processes, your thought patterns are, are somehow defective. Uh, this is a great danger here that people, particularly using these words, a fundamentalist, say um, a, a Christian who may oppose abortion, often are described as fundamentalists. What, what they're doing straight away, they're narrow-minded, they're closed-minded, they, they, they can't see the full truth and reality of things. So in other words, these terms are being used to, to, to stigmatise anybody who opposes 
what the people would say are the prevailing progressive attitudes in the society. Words are very powerful instruments. Words are being used um, very much in, in this, these efforts of social change, uh, firstly to promote certain practices in social change, but also to demonise those who any way oppose it. Of course, a very interesting book to read in relation to this is a book that was written, I think, in 1947 called 1984 mm -hmm. by George Orwell, where in one sense he predicted uh, a lot of what we're now seeing happening uh, in our society, in many Western societies. Well, Bishop Julian, this has given us much food for thought and uh, I'm sure that we'll all reflect on these issues as they come up more and more in our society. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. And Jeremy, we come to that part of our... Um, a time together when uh, we just look at some different aspects of Catholic culture and Catholic life and uh, I'd like to um, look at uh, some hymns as well as we've, we've looked at some prayers in the past. One um, hymn that is uh, a hymn that's used very often in the church and it's something that uh, is really deeply part of our Catholic culture and I think it's a very beautiful hymn. It's, um, and I might just keep the, the Latin version of it today, Veni Creator Spiritus. Uh, it's, it's a hymn that um, is used, for example, when uh, we had the recent conclave of cardinals to elect a new pope. It was a hymn that was sung as the cardinals entered into the, uh, the conclave. It's uh, a hymn that is uh, also sung at the consecration of bishops or can be sung at the consecration of bishops, ordination of priests. It's a, a hymn that uh, can be used, as has traditionally been used a great deal in relation to the sacrament of confirmation. It's uh, a hymn that I knew we often would sing at the beginning of a retreat. And it's a, a hymn that is can be used, for instance, at, at the beginning of a council or a synod of bishops or uh, a special other special moments. So it's, it's a hymn that uh, is, is very familiar to many in the church because it's used so often. It's, a, it's almost the hymn to use whenever there is some very special moment in which the church wants to invoke the Holy Spirit. And of course, veni creator spiritus, it's asking for the creator spirit, come creator spirit. And this, this hymn is quite ancient in the church. It's, it's attributed to a, uh, a monk called Rabanus Maurus, who lived in the, the ninth century. So it's quite an ancient hymn. It's a very, a very beautiful hymn. I, I mention it today because it's part of our Catholic uh, tradition. But what I particularly like about this hymn is the content of, of, of the words of the hymn. It's, it's very simply a hymn invoking the Holy Spirit and recognizing how important the Holy Spirit is in the Christian life. And as I mentioned, say before retreat or, or before the, the cardinals elect a new pope, what do they do? They turn to the Holy Spirit and say, come, asking the Holy Spirit to come, knowing that they need the inspiration and the guidance 
of the Holy Spirit in the decision they're about to make. And it reminds us too that this is a very important dimension to our life as Catholics, that uh, any important decision, any major step we make in our life, any special moment when we're coming together for a spiritual purpose, what we want to do is invoke the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. So this hymn, which is uh, quite ancient in the church since the ninth century, used fairly standardly in, in many key moments in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the life of the church, can remind us that, that as Catholics, we appreciate how important it is to have the Holy Spirit there as a presence, as a guide, as a source of wisdom, a source of truth. And the simple but very beautiful invocation of the church is just simply say, come Holy Spirit. Well, it sounds like a very beautiful and prayerful hymn. Um, the title is vaguely familiar. Do you care to give a rendition of it, Bishop Julian? Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the offer, but I might decline it. Okay, Thank well, you. maybe next time on Question and Answer with Bishop Julian Porteous. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.org.